You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by SolarEdge. SolarEdge lets you drive your electric vehicle on solar power with the world's first two-in-one EV charging solar inverter. Run your EV on sunshine with SolarEdge. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven website. And um, joining me, well, joining me today is Chris Mills, the CEO of EV Networks. Chris, um, thanks for joining the podcast. Giles, it's my pleasure to join you. Look, we've um, had a variety of different um, discussions over the last couple of weeks. Um, today, we're looking, um, EV Networks is a charging company, and it's just set about rolling out um, what will be the largest network of ultra-fast chargers in Australia. And the very first one was opened up at Coochin Creek, just north of Brisbane. Um, Chris, you better start off by telling people exactly what an ultra-fast charger is. Yeah, that's a good point to start with, Giles. Uh, an ultra-fast charger uh, is a charger that can deliver speeds of up to 350 kilowatts. Now, what that means for a driver, it's a very simple rule of thumb. The, uh, the rating of the charger, the kilowatt rating of the charger, is roughly equivalent to about the number of kilometers that you will get in your battery for every 10 minutes of charging. So for a 350 kilowatt charger, if your car is able to accept that charge, it can deliver 350 kilometers of battery uh, in 10 minutes. So that's ultra fast. That's petrol-esque. That's, that's really interesting. I look, I like that allegory, that um, analogy actually. Yes, yeah, so that's 350 kilometers. Um, I guess, um, so you've got the ultra fast, which is 350 kilowatts or 350 kilometers every 10 minutes. You've got the fast chargers, which I think, um, now where do, what, what category do they come in? Are they sort of 150 kilowatts or do they go uh, down well, to 50 kilowatts? 50 kilowatts is a fast charger. So, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that's typically used in, in a metropolitan uh, type setting. Um, and that will give you 50 kilometers in 10 minutes. Now, the interesting thing, uh, Giles, to understand is there aren't that many cars that are out there today, there aren't that many electric vehicles that can actually accept a 350 kilowatt charge. A lot of these cars today, um, you know, the, the more affordable vehicles can take, you know, a 70 kilowatt charge up to a 100 kilowatt charge for some of the more expensive models. and you know, right up to, uh, you know, almost 240, 250 kilowatts for the very expensive cars. But the charger can deliver the charge that the car will accept. And so what we're in essence, we're doing by rolling out 350 kilowatt chargers today is to future-proof the network because the next generation of cars and even the generation of cars after that, you know, will, will eventually get to the stage where they're able to accept that speed of charge. It's interesting too. So the 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 the, the um and, and when do we explore? I guess I've got a, a bunch of different questions just sort of arrived in my head at the same time. So I better sort of um just start one by one. Um, so when do we expect the first car that can actually take a three hundred and fifty kilowatt charge? <laughs> well, Giles, I think your guess is as good as mine. Um, you know, right now the the most expensive car, that the Porsche Taycan, that takes about a two hundred and forty kilowatt charge. 
Um, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say it's on drawing boards, but I can't predict when the next cars will be coming online that will take a faster charge. But, you know, you know it's fair to say that, um, and I'm sure that you would appreciate this, and many of our, uh, many of the listeners would appreciate that, you know, uh, electric vehicle technology is, is advancing and, and it's advancing at an increasing rate. So I don't think that it's unreasonable to expect that, you know, in five years, there will be cars that will readily take that sort of charge and, you know, they'll be able to stop at a highway location. Um, typically, they'll spend about 10 to 20 minutes to charge their car. And they'll almost get that petrol-esque type experience when they when they're stopping and, and you know um, and uh, and getting a charge. You know, one of the interesting things for us, uh, Giles, is you know customers will spend ten to twenty minutes at a service centre. And so, what we are really keen to make sure is that when they are spending that time at the charger, they actually have a good customer experience. And we've sort of broken that down into three key categories. Is the site easily accessible? Because there's sort of no point putting a site at a service center if you've got to drive 10 kilometers up the road to find the crossover to then come back and, you know, and actually get there. So it's got to be readily accessible no matter which side of the highway you're on. The second one, it's got to be safe and secure. You know, it has to be 24 seven security, lighting, we have a very simple saying uh, within Evie, would you let your 17 or 18 year old son or daughter charge there at two o'clock in the morning? And if the answer is no, then it's not really a site that we would look to, to, to move forward with. And I think the third one is, because you're going to be there for 20 minutes, there has to be on-site amenity and services so that you can have something to eat. You know, you can take a rest break. You know, you don't have to be with the car. It's securely charging at an ultra-fast rate while you're at the, you know, the, the, the local convenience store having a bite to eat or, you know, um, the kids are going to the bathroom, you're having a break. And you've actually sort of located this um, first charger at Coochin Creek, just north of Brisbane, deliberately. Um, it's got next to some sort of fast food um, centres and things like that. So that's part of the equation. Um, it's an interesting one, actually, because when people sort of talk about fast charges and expecting to sort of charge over half an hour an hour, sort of people might have thought, would they have time for lunch? But um, that's not quite what you're offering here, is it? No, it's not. And, and you know, we look at it this way, uh, Giles. There are, there are horses for courses is probably a good way to think about it. An ultra-fast charger has a good use case on a highway where people are wanting to get to a destination. They don't particularly want to spend a long time taking, you know, to get there. And so, you know, they want a fast charge, an ultra-fast charge. They want to be at the charging station for, you know, as minimum time as possible. And so they want the fastest charge they can get. And that's what the ultra-fast charger does. But the ultra-fast charger isn't necessarily a good use case, say, for example, in a metropolitan setting where you might have destination-based charging, say, at a shopping centre where you might spend an hour, an hour and a half doing your shopping. You don't need a fast charge, an ultra-fast charger for that. You can use a 50-kilowatt charger, mm -hmm. um, and that'll give you a sufficient charge while you're doing your shopping or, you know, um, being at the centre. 
What about those people who might have an electric vehicle but don't necessarily have the facilities to charge it at home, either because they don't have off-street parking or they're in an apartment block which doesn't have the facilities? Um, wouldn't they have a need to go on the weekend or after work to somewhere where they can just sort of, you know, do what they do basically in petrol stations now, sort of top, top it up pretty quickly and, um, you know, maybe not want to just sort of sit down and have a cup of coffee? Sure. Um, interestingly, uh, in, in the design of our network, our highway network, we've, uh, we've thought carefully about um, how we would site um, our charges and not only to make sure that we uh, meet those three customer experience criteria, but, but also you know, thinking about um, uh, the routes around the capital cities and not, not just providing sites say for example, not just providing a site in Sydney or a site in Brisbane. And we've thought carefully about making sure that no matter where you come into say Sydney or where you leave Sydney, whether it be coming from the north, you know, from Newcastle or from the north uh, west, say for example, from uh, Singleton or coming from the west from Lithgow, south from, you know, from Canberra or, or Melbourne or whatever, that there is always an ultra-fast charger that is located on the outskirts of the city so that you can get a charge, feel confident about navigating through the city with enough battery, you know, with enough life in your battery so that you can get to your destination. And equally, as you leave the city, you can get a charge as you leave the outskirts of the city because, you know, candidly, it could take you a quarter of a battery to get yourself through all the traffic lights and everything else before you actually get to the outskirts of our big capital cities. And suddenly, you know, a 200 kilometres to the next charger seems like an awful long distance. And so we, we are looking to make sure that we can place those charges in, in places so people can take that charge and then move on with confidence to get to the next site. Now, that's highway charging. What you're talking about is metro charging, and that's a, that's a, different, that's a different story. You know, where we look at metro charging, you know, we take a philosophy, you know, and that is what is what is needed is to give people confidence, not only that they have, let's call it macro coverage, which is coverage between the capital cities, but also, you know, to some extent, let's call it intra-capital city coverage, where you've got available charging for uh, a publicly available fast charging, sorry, you know, within 15 minutes, no matter where you are. And we're looking very carefully about you know, whether or not that makes sense for us to expand into metropolitan charging. So not only are we supporting the, the intra-capital city um, travel, but also the travel that's in and around the capital cities. And one of the really interesting things when you start to think about it, Giles, and that is you know, ultimately you know, the, the advent of electric vehicles, the uptake of electric vehicles here in Australia, together with you know, the, the increasing utilisation of ride hailing, you only need one more leg of the stool, you know, which is moving into autonomous vehicles, when you start to really think, oh, we could start to move into mobility as a service. Uh, but mobility as a service needs a, a, a charging network to underscore it. You know, there needs to be that, that fabric of infrastructure to give autonomous vehicles the ability to be able to take charge in reasonable areas so that they can provide that mobility as a service. And so one of the things that we're looking at very closely right now is what would a metropolitan network look like for us to be able to provide not only that, that intra-capital city coverage, 
but also position ourselves so that we can actually move towards mobility as a service. That's fascinating too. And I suppose if you're going to have an autonomous car network, then you'd probably be using the cars as much as you possibly can. So you're not probably thinking about overnight charging. You are thinking about charging as quick as possible. And the autonomous cars don't need to sit down and drink coffees because they don't drink coffee. Um, yeah. So ultra fast charging would then be the answer then. Am I thinking about that in the right way? You are absolutely right. You know, you'd have banks of charges for them to, to be recharged as quickly as possible so that they're back on the road. I mean, the key to autonomous vehicles is to maximise the utility of the car itself. You know, if many people have seen the Tony Sieber report, and it's quite, you know, it's quite provocative, but it does paint, you know, a compelling picture of how we could be moving in the not-too-distant future. And in that not-too-distant future, he talks about us being able to provide greater mobility services with far few vehicles on the road, you know? Now, the interesting thing for that yes. is that's a great future picture, but how do you get there? You know, what's the stepping stone to take you there? You know, step number yes, one, yeah. you've, got to, you, you've got to electrify Uber, yeah? Mm -hmm. Now, one of, the interesting, one of the interesting things when you think about it, you know, everyone talks about, you know, I remember seeing um, last year, and, and I've not been in the electric vehicle industry for that long, so, you know, I'm on a you know, pretty steep learning curve still, but one of the things that, I, that, that really struck home for me when I uh, was, was first introduced to electric vehicles and started to do some reading, I, I remember reading something from the CEFC and they talked about the EV trifecta. They talked about the necessary legs to the stool for sustainable electric vehicle take-up. And they were uh, affordable cars, model availability, and you know, um, charging infrastructure. And, you know, the interesting thing when you start to think about that is model availability and price of cars. Now, price of cars right now for an Uber driver today, with the number of kilometres that they drive, the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle is equivalent to the total cost of ownership of an internal combustion engine. Because the fuel, fuel costs they save and the servicing costs they save um, you know, uh, provide that additional contribution to the extra over purchase price of the car. But mm, how do you convert them? How do you convert them to electric vehicles if there isn't a network that's out there to support them? And one of the great mm. things about the Sambaker Fund, you know, when you look at the Sambaker Fund, they get this. They they absolutely get this, and they are supporting us not only in building a, a network of highway sites, but they're supporting us in moving towards you know, deploying a network of fast chargers, publicly available fast chargers, for us to be able to electrify Uber hmm. so that we can actually start to take cars off the road. And you're thinking about getting into the mobility, um, the electromobility um, business yourselves? Well, I definitely think someone needs to provide the infrastructure to get it going, you know. Again, you know, talking hmm. about that three-legged stool from the CEFC, you know, you know, you know, one of the things that I, I, I mention whenever I'm, you know, speaking publicly, I talk about that, you know, in the absence of any sort of positive government policy to promote the uptake of electric vehicle, who goes first? Who takes the leap of faith and goes out and makes the investment? Is it the automotive manufacturers to, to import, you know, an increased number of models into the, into the country? 
you know, or is it, um, or is it the charging infrastructure guys who, who go out there and start to invest in charging infrastructure? And we believe, you know, backed by, backed by the Sabaker Fund, we believe that it's a build it and they will come strategy. You've got to give the automotive manufacturers confidence to import models. And once they start importing models, you'll actually start to see the cost of the cars come down. Hmm. And we believe- well, It's interesting because, um, yeah, because yeah. Tony Sieber, which you mentioned before, we've um, we actually had him on the very first um, edition of the uh, the Driven podcast, and we've written a few stories about his vision over the last couple of years, and it's a fascinating one. It's one that a lot of people trouble to ha- get their mind around. But I mean, the basis of his, as you say, is using those cars as much as you can, and if you think about the um, cars now, I mean, even a you know, a privately owned car might be used. You know, what's the figure? Five, ten percent of the time at four, most. Four percent. Four percent of the time, Giles. Four percent of the time. You've got the figures right Absolutely. to hand. And I guess yeah. And a Uber driver has to be limited by the amount of time he can drive each day. So that's maybe ten or twelve hours. An autonomous vehicle. Well, there's no reason it can't go for twenty-four hours minus the time it needs to charge. Yeah, yeah. Look, I th- and there are a number of factors that limit the Uber driver, and it's not just you know the number of hours of the day. You know, a lot of these drivers, you know, lease vehicles and those leasing companies, you know, a lot of the economics of leasing the vehicles to Uber drivers is in the residual value. And the re- residual value is driven by, you know, how many kilometres are on the clock when it comes time to sell the car. And so you actually find leasing companies limiting Uber drivers as to the volume of traffic that they can, you know, volume of rides that they can take. So, you know, you, you've really got to break all of, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of impediments for us to move towards, you know, autonomous vehicles and, and, and getting cars on the road and mm. absolutely using them to, you know, as, as much as you can. Yeah. Um, and Tony Seaver also says about, you know, and because you can use them so much time, the actual cost per journey um, will come down dramatically. So what you would now pay oh, yeah. $20 or $30 for a taxi ride, you might be, you know, a cup of coffee price, you know, 4 or $5. And I guess we'll wait and see whether that turns out to be true or not, because I'm sure somebody will be in there trying to clip the ticket and push up the margins, but maybe the sense of competition oh, look, will bring the know, prices down. Yeah, look, and he has a point, you know, a, a large component Interestingly enough, if you actually look at the ride hailing and taxi business, you know, over 50% of the cost of the service is actually the driver. Mm-hmm. When you remove the driver, you're actually taking 50% of the cost out of it. And then interestingly enough, of the remaining 50%, there's a fair chunk of that that actually includes things like insurance and all of the other incidentals that are because of the driver. And so once you remove mm-hmm. all of those costs out, and you increase the, the utilisation of the vehicle, so depreciation costs, you know, drop dramatically, you know, you can expect that you will get, you know, maybe the cost of a, cost of a cup of coffee. I mean, he's purposely provocative, but I can, I can see where, where, his logic, where his logic leads. Hmm. And what about his timeline? Um, he talks about 2030. I think the title of our article we wrote about it a couple of years ago was, by 2030, you probably won't own a car. Um, are you thinking the same timeline? No, I think I think that's where he is very provocative. Um, you know, I think there's a few more years. There's a few more years to that. I think I think you know it, certainly here in Australia. You know, let's 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 be candid. You know, the take up of electric vehicles isn't anywhere near where it is in the rest of the world. Um, you know, I, but that said, you know, actually 2019 was a really good year for EVs. I think, 
you had automotive manufacturers really starting to, you know, to release new models. You know, there were announcements by all sorts of manufacturers from Hyundai with the Ionic and the Kona, and they're great cars. I was in a, a Kona just the other day. That's a great car. And, you know, right up through to, um, right up through to the, the new, uh, oh, actually, and the new Leaf, that's a really nice car inside, by the way. I was really impressed with the quality of the interior of the car. You know, all the way up to, you know, the Mercedes and the Audis and the, you know, the Jaguar I-Pace and the, and, the, and the Porsche Taycan, you, you know, the models are starting to arrive. But the interesting challenge is, whilst the models are starting to arrive, you know, are they actually, uh, you know, are they actually importing the numbers of the cars, you know, to allow people to actually start to take them up? But, you know, 2019, you know, if you compare it to 2018, there were hardly any cars. I think 2018, there were, mm -hmm. what, um, 16 or 17 models, you know, of plug-in, hybrid and battery electric vehicles. You know, and the sad thing was, I think only five of them were under $60,000. Mm. You know, and now mm. we're getting more and more cars. Well, that's good. So tell me about the lifespan then of one of your ultra-fast charging units, because um, obviously what you're talking about here is a bit of a long-term play, so presumably mm -hmm. that that's something that sort of, you know, it's, um, it's infrastructure, so I guess what, 10, 20, 30 years? What are you, what are you, what are you looking at? Certainly the sites will last that long. Um, you know, in our business plan, we, uh, we've allocated, uh, we, we've, we have an expectation that the equipment would be refreshed every seven years. Um, as far as the quality of the tritium equipment, you know, it's one of the, one of the few, if not the only, um, um, and look, don't quote me on this one, even though everybody's listening to me, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's either one of few or it's the only, you know, um, sealed uh, seal charger um, and you know and whilst that might make maintenance of it a little more difficult it certainly keeps the the environment at bay you know in an Australia where we have the heat and we have the you know and the humidity and the like you know it's a it's to me it's a really good piece of equipment so we've got quite a lot of confidence albeit we're just starting out we've got quite a lot of confidence in the quality of the equipment and its longevity hmm. And you know, it's good to mention the fact that these um, these um, things are made by Tritium, which is the Brisbane-based um, charging company, which has made a big splash. And we've also done a podcast um, with the Tritium people too, so check out that. Now, um, what's it going to cost people to charge at these ultra-fast charging stations? I know the first one in Coochin Creek is going to be free for the first month, but um, then on after it won't be. Um, how much will it hit people? I mean, at the moment, you can probably charge at a fast charging station for about well if you're talking about filling up the tank and a 450 kilometer range you know it's probably one third one quarter of the cost of um an electric of a petrol vehicle i've heard said in the past that an ultra fast because it's demanding it's pulling more from the grid at that time at, um, at, at the one time will be more expensive and and maybe equivalent um to you know filling up your car with petrol or diesel yeah, look, um, firstly, uh, let me just reiterate that we are offering for the remainder of the month of November, uh, the Cooch and Creek site, we, we, we're, not, we're not charging for it because uh, we want uh, EV drivers to get up there and have a look and experience it and see sort of what an EV, and when I say EV, I mean EVIE, an EV site, you know, looks and feels like. Um, as to charging, that, that's an interesting question. You, you, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the interesting uh, differences between electric vehicle drivers and, and ICE drivers 
is that today right now for a petrol vehicle, you, you buy your petrol 100% at the petrol station. Um, whereas with an electric vehicle, you know, the expectation, and, and reasonably so, is that probably 80% of your charge you'll get at home. You'll, you'll get home, you'll plug it in at night, you'll have some sort of um, management system so that you can take really good uh, advantage of off-peak rates and the like. Um, and so therefore, you know, between 20, 15 and 20% of the charging that you'll do, you'll do at publicly available AC or fast chargers. Um, and so as a consequence, you're absolutely right. You know, the sort of cost that, that people are, you know, should reasonably expect, you know, in that combined type model is about 25% of the cost of petrol. With regards to charging at an ultra-fast site exclusively, I think you're getting, I don't think you'll get to petrol prices. I think you're getting, you know, um, it'll be over 50%, but it certainly won't be uh, 100% of petrol costs. And one of the things that we're looking at at the moment is we're actually taking a very close look at what Steve West has done in New Zealand. And he has a combination of price and time. So a, a cost of a, a kilowatt hours, so there's a, there's a rate per kilowatt hour, but there's also a rate on the per minute that you're sitting at the charger. And what we want to do is to make sure that we, we, we have a charging regime that's equitable no matter what type of car you come to the, the charging station, but equally we want drivers to, to behave in a way such that you know, they, they charge, but once the car, you know, is 80% or, you know, it charged to where they want it to be, that they, they get off and they allow somebody else to get onto the charger so that we don't, you know, have a situation where we have people that are waiting. And so, you know, we are seriously considering a combination of time and price, but we haven't announced that yet. Um, and we'll probably announce that. In fact, we will announce that um, in December once we move out of that free charging uh, period. Hmm, indeed. And so where else are you um, putting, looking to, I mean, how many are you putting out in this particular rollout? I can't quite remember the number now. Was it uh -huh. um, 18 or was it more than that? Oh, Giles, no, no, no. It's, it's the answer to the life, the universe and everything. It's 42. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> I, was gonna, I had two numbers in my head and I knew I was, I was going to pick the wrong one. 42. Uh, and then 42 you spread out where? Yep. So we start in far north Queensland and we'll have site, a site deployed in Cairns, in Townsville and in Proserpine. Then what we'll do is we'll take a break from there because one of the things that's really important to us when we were designing the network was to make sure that very much in this early stage that we weren't duplicating sites. So we weren't building sites where sites already existed because we believe that at this early stage of the take up of electric vehicles and the rollout of electric vehicle infrastructure is that you need to positively add to the overall fabric of either the infrastructure that exists in Australia. And so, and so you know, we know that the Queensland Electric Superhighway, which is the Queensland Government's initiative, you know, runs down the Bruce Highway. And so from Proserpine down to Gympie, we aren't putting sites because there already exists those 50 kilowatt charges which the Queensland government deployed. But we pick it up at Gympie. We run down through to Coochin Creek, our first site, which is now operational, to Brisbane. And as I said to you, we then have sites that sit on the outskirts of Brisbane, all of the major highways coming in and going out so that you can get through the city. You can do a top up and then be on your way and vice versa. You can come into the city, get a top up and you know, then navigate your way through the, through the city, down the Pacific Highway to uh, Sydney. Again, wrapping around Sydney, we have a site that goes out to Lithgow past the Blue Mountains, and we've done that purposely so that people can get across the Blue Mountains. We have a site in Penrith, by the way, and then a site in Lithgow, so you can do a top-up in Penrith, 
For those of you who know the Blue Mountains, you know, it's quite hilly. Um, it gives you the confidence of being able to traverse the Blue Mountains, get to Lithgow, and then from Lithgow, you can then connect into the NRMA network and enjoy the 50 kilowatt charges that have been deployed about Western New South Wales. We go down the Hume Highway to Canberra and then down to Melbourne, again, wrapping around Melbourne with what we call those, those um, outer, uh, outer city sites. We call them donut sites because they sit as a ring around the outskirts of the city. Um, we have, again, we have a site in, in Ballarat, but then we don't, interestingly enough, we don't then um, move forward to Adelaide with sites on the, on the Great Western Highway because, because ChargeFox have sites at uh, Ararat and at Bordertown. And again, there's no point duplicating. It, 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 it's counterproductive to duplicate. Why not take that site you know, that we could have put there and put it somewhere where there isn't an, a, an ultra-fast charger. And so we have three sites in Tasmania. We link Hobart to Launceston to Devonport. And we have three sites in Perth, again, purposely then picking up, you know, the existing 50 kilowatt charging networks that are out there already. Mm -hmm. And will that be the extent of it? Or would there be a second stage and, um, and, other, and other plans after that? Yeah, look, we've, we've certainly got other plans in place at the moment and we're, we're moving forward with those plans, but I think it's a little too early for me to be talking about them publicly. Yeah, fair enough. And look, one final question before we go. What is your strategy to dealing with people, um, you know, the problem of being iced? In other words, having an internal combustion engine sort of take up space in an electric vehicle charging spot. Yeah, that's, you know, interestingly, we were, we were talking about that just the other day and Laws are only as effective as they are enforceable. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges that we have with regards to icing, particularly on the remote highway sites, that's going to be really hard. That's going to be really hard. You know, one of the things that we've been thinking about is how do we proactively work with the landowner, the, the, the site provider, you know, who, who in essence is going to gain a convenience sale from electric vehicles who are stopped and are charging. How do we work with them so that they are actively policing the site to make sure that it isn't being iced? And, and you know, that's a, that's a, you know, candidly, that's a, a landlord by landlord conversation that we have um, because we're, we're making sure that they understand it's to their benefit to have these sites available because as people stop and park and plug in their car, you know, they go off and they spend. You know, interestingly enough, in America, the, um, the research tells us that um, the average retail spend for an EVgo customer, you know, with, with, with the stores that surround the site, $28, $28 US. The average retail spend in the petrol forecourt of a petrol station on a highway today in, in Australia, $6. And so that's remarkable, you know, actually. I wonder if EV owners have actually thought about that and the extra money yep. they spend on other things. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, and that, that's that's you know that's the catch. That's how you get, you know, that, that's how we have, you know, um, you know, we're working with the uh, with the site providers, you know, so, to make sure that they understand that you know the. The convenience revenue that they earn from that EV driver who's there for 20 minutes at 40% margin, by the way, far outweighs the petrol they earn at 4% and the $6 of convenience revenue because there's a pressure to get off the forecourt and get going. Hmm. 
It just makes me ask another question then. So, how do you split the revenue from the actual charging between yourselves and the um, and and the uh, and, and the landlords? How's that? Yeah, done? that's uh, yeah, that's something I'm not going to go into, uh, Giles, because <laughs> uh, it you know it's it's uh, candidly it's commercial inconfidence and 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 also it's Fair actually very, you know, it's different between the various landlords. So the worst thing in the okay. world for me to do would be to say something like that in public and then have some of my landlords turn to me and say, "Well, that's not the deal I've got." Well, I thought I'd ask anyway. Chris, look, fantastic. Thanks very much for joining the uh, Driven Podcast. We really appreciate um, you being here and um, good luck with the rollout. Giles, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you very much to the sponsors of this um, podcast, this uh, series of 10 podcasts, um, Solar Edge. Um, do check out um, their products. They're sort of shifting just from sort of solar inverters to also EV inverters, particularly interesting for households and uh, transferring solar from the roof to the car and possibly vice versa in the future. Um, thank you for listening and we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by SolarEdge. SolarEdge EV chargers combine solar energy and grid power to charge your electric vehicle up to four times faster than a standard wall charger. Whether you own an EV now or want to be EV ready, future-proof your home with SolarEdge. Visit solaredge.com slash AUS and drive your solar further.